Welcome to Deep Dive MH370, episode 14, another one. Hello everyone, I'm Andy Tarnoff, the publisher of On Milwaukee, and after a bit of technical difficulty, I am joined by Jeff Wise, aviation journalist and MH370 expert, but I think we have it figured out, Jeff. By the end of this, you're going to be calling me Squadcast expert Jeff Wise, because we have done so much debugging and fooling around with settings. Oh my God. Uh, so I am really happy to be with you, Andy, because I love making this podcast with you. Um, I love talking about MH370 for our listeners and our viewers, and I love overcoming technical hurdles, which we've had a ton of in the well, last Well, you know, we're on episode while. 14, so probably yeah. by episode 17 or so, we're going to have all this stuff squared away. So I hope our, our viewers and our listeners will bear with us as we, as we continue to do. The thing is, you know... I don't know if people can tell this by looking at this, but I'm in Milwaukee. So I'm in Wisconsin. Jeff, you're in New York City. Right. This is like kind of like, this is some pretty high tech stuff here. We're not in the same studio. It's pretty incredible that we can do it at all. And yet, and we find ourselves complaining bitterly about how hard it is. Yeah. So we should probably pipe down with our first world problems because what we're talking about are some uh, actual real problems. And uh, if you recall, last episode was was, uh, a very important one because we laid out the route that MH370, had it gone north, could have gone north and would have evaded all of the radar that probably the average person, when they hear about this, says, no way. That's, I mean, that's mm-hmm. like, you know, their eyes in the sky, but we showed right. why there isn't. And today we're going to get a little bit deeper into right. the second, yeah. seven, 7th, 12th phenomenon here that, that, that makes this story so amazingly insane. This is a tale of twists and turns, as we promised at the beginning. The more you look at it, the crazier it gets. There's always twists and turns. There's always surprises. And, yeah, another big one. Another big one drops today. But, um, yeah, so so where we left it last episode was the plane had flown over India, Nepal, the Himalayan Ridge, um, over some um, countries of, that formerly belonged to the Soviet Union, and that's sort of let's where we pick up the tale today. Yeah. So I want to kind of bring bring you back in time to um, 2014. Right. You were sitting in the green room at CNN. So now I'm looking at my notes. So apologies right. for that one. You're sitting in the green room at CNN and on a computer screen, uh, they start listing the names of the passengers on the manifest. And a couple stood out to you. One was a passenger uh, from Russia. His name is or was Nikolai Brodsky. And then there were two Ukrainians on the plane, Sergei Denika, Denika. I say my Ukrainian's kind of so-so. Okay. Yeah. Sergei and and Oleg Chustrak. Chustrak. I really got a bone up on my Ukrainian, but nonetheless, those those hit you like a bolt of lightning, right? So tell me what what crossed your mind. Yes. So you know the Malaysians from the beginning had been kind of very parsimonious in, in, in doling out the information. And so we were always waiting to get the new um, dribs and drabs of information, and they finally released the, the passenger manifest, who was on this plane. And yeah, these three names leaped out to me. Um, I had um, already been wondering, you know, who on board this plane might have, have taken it. And... Um, these three Russian names. Now, I don't know how many Russians or Ukrainians typically travel on a red-eye flight from Kuala Lumpur to Beijing. I would think probably not that many. I wouldn't um, think so. And, and it, who are these guys? And so I wondered, 
Who were they? Why were they on the plane? And these are, I spent a lot, a lot, a lot of time looking into these guys. I, I even flew to Ukraine um, to do oh, you did? research. My, yeah, I did. Um, and while I was uh, away- On your own kids, dime? Did you, was that? I did. I did. Completely on my own dime. Well, so if anyone, um, so right now, like if anyone's do. questioning whether or not uh, yeah. you're into this thing, you flew to Ukraine, and in 2014, that was probably not the same. Well, no, I didn't decision. fly in 2014. It wasn't until quite a bit later that I. Okay, well, it still probably wasn't an extremely safe decision, but I'm, I'm glad you made it out alive. Well, I never did go to Russia. I would not go to Russia. Actually. Okay, I'm, I'm to, actually, for, actually for probably after this podcast, I'm glad that you're not doing that. Right, right. right. Um, so yeah, so so you knew about Brodsky, right? So like this guy. He there is some information out there. The Russian media had uh, had contacted his family. They interviewed right. him. He was a he ran a timber company, and yeah, he was a, he was a diver. Products. He was a diver. His so he was kind of a MacGyver type of character. His um, I'm not, I don't want to get, give away too much, but we what we so the so early on we what we knew about Nikolai Brodsky was that he he had a wife. Um, and he had a son from a previous marriage, and he um, had this timber business, and he was he was an active um, scuba diver. Okay. And um, he used to dive under the ice of Lake Baikal in the winter. So kind of a tough guy, and um, so so he seemed like. Um, a guy that was not sort of living in the shadows or anything. Like it seemed like he was who he seemed to be. He had like a public persona. He had a he sort was, of a uh, public persona. He was he was on a he was on a scuba diving trip to Bali and he was coming back early right. because either he promised his wife that he would go to dinner with her on March eighth, which is International right. Women's Day. Right. Or he had to go on a business trip to Mongolia. Yeah, there were kind of conflicting accounts about that. Um, International Women's Day uh, is something which I'd never heard of before MH370. Since then, it's been kind of become more of a known thing. It was sort of a socialist, like international, yeah. communist. Um, I mean, I've definitely holiday. heard of it, but I don't know if I would oh, cut my uh, my work trip short on that one. It's not Valentine's Day, but I mean, I thought it was weird, but then people who are from Ukraine and from Russia told okay. me that no, it's actually a big deal. It's kind of like it's a little bit like Valentine's Day. It's like okay. it's in honor of, of women okay. in general. So it's and we not should a point romantic. Out, okay. Okay. So we should point out that this episode, we're just going to kind of like, we're going to touch on some of this stuff because there's a right. hell of a lot more detail. But I did want to ask you where Brodsky was sitting on the plane. Okay. So Brodsky was sitting in the front of the plane, like in the first class cabinet. I don't think it was styled as first class. It was business class. Okay. Um, but it was the the rich people's part of the plane, the nice okay. part of the plane. So he front. was, but that's, but that becomes he was interesting butt feet, later. He was butt feet away from that piece of carpet with the right. stairs that takes you that's down. That's right. Okay. That's All right. right. So now the other two guys that uh, raised your attention, these two Ukrainians. Um, right. Less is known about these guys. Their relatives didn't want to talk to the media, and right. but we do know is that they had an an online furniture company called Nika Mibel. You know, I, I took Mibel. a semester of high school uh, Russian, but apparently didn't, you did. did not. I didn't pick very much up. I can speak, I mean, I can read a little Cyrillic, but obviously I'm not doing a great job on this. But I do. we do know that uh, Mibel or Mebel is the Russian word for furniture, and they were That's joint right. owners of this furniture factory in Odessa. 
it was like it was kind of new, right? Like it. <laughs> they, they weren't selling any furniture yet. Had start there was no store. Um, they supposedly had a factory, but I've never been able to determine where this factory, this supposed factory was. Um, they had started this online store the previous year. Like if you went back to internet archives, okay. sort of in the like late 2013, you start to see this store. And before that it's, so it raised kind of the question to me, like, okay, these guys had this company, but how were they, where were they making the furniture? How are they selling the furniture? Um, and again, this is something we'll get into more detail later, but the fact that their relatives didn't want to talk about it, they had this sort of shady looking online store. Um, and they were kind of these like lunky, <laughs> big lunky yeah, I've guys. Seen, I've seen the security footage and right. it's in the Netflix documentary. And yeah, I mean, if you had to pick out people who look like special agents or operatives right. it would probably be these guys this sort uh, of like i think i described at one point as like the kind of guys that liam neeson would get into like a fist yeah. fight on an airplane with yeah definitely um, florence to shangi who was also in the netflix documentary she's the french lady who thinks that the americans shot it down right um but she just she she saw the security cam footage before I way before I did and she just had described it she described these guys as looking like if anyone on this plane were air pirates um as she called it in French I think that just means hijacker but if anyone was air pirates it was these guys which I mean obviously it's not a you know fair which is not probative accusation to to level on anyone but they weren't you know little puny dudes they they were right big tough guys on a plane so, does the fact that the the timber company and the furniture company is there any connection there or is that just a, I mean has anyone thought about that because you need timber to make furniture right that's what, what i was thinking i mean there we, we we let's chew over that like a little okay. bit more later but i, I will okay. say that these guys both got involved in business in the early 90s when um, the Soviet Union had collapsed. Everything was up for grabs. Things like timber concessions okay. were you know, that had been owned by the state were now kind of seized by these. A lot of them are like kind of organized crime people. Okay, all right. So now by we're t- now we're into July 2014, and but at I this would point, say, yeah, go ahead. To, sorry to interrupt you. That's okay. Although it's a testament to the quality of our audio connection that I can interrupt. Yeah, you. it's a good sign. <laughs> um, but I wanted to say that, so I was thinking about, I, we, so last week we talked about how the plane might have might have actually wound up in Kazakhstan. Um, and then, so that made me really interested in the Russians on board the plane. Um, and so I actually, by early July, had hired investigators in both Russia and Ukraine to sort of see what was going on with um, possibly look, tracking down the activities of these people who were on the plane. Can so you tell I was me how thinking that, about how that Ukraine, worked? I was thinking about Russia. Yeah, like just as an aside, like how do you do that? How do you do what? How do you hire investigators in Ukraine and Russia to, to dig up uh, your dirt? What do you, I mean, without like, you know, getting them in trouble, like how'd you do that? Um, I didn't know how to do it. Um, I've since done it like a whole bunch of times, but at the, okay. at my first way I did it was to call up my buddy at the New York Times, who's a muckety muck, and I said, "Can you 
put me in touch with an investigator in Russia and he, he, he put me in touch with a really excellent freelancer who did amazing work. Um, did you get so some stuff out of it? I mean, did you learn? I got a lot anything? out of it. Yeah. Okay. Which I'll be sharing later. All right. So we'll save that for later. Okay. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're in, we're in mid July, July 17th and you know, you've already got a little bit of a suspicion that maybe Russia has something to do with this. Your phone rings and it's a producer from CNN asking if you could go on, on the air to talk about uh, a Malaysia Airlines 777 that had just gone down over Ukraine. And, you know, of course you think, what? I was like, you mean, well, you mean the, the Malaysian Airlines 777 that went down, that went missing over the South China Sea? She's like, right. no, 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 Ukraine. I'm like, what i'm like i'm like malaysian airlines triple seven ukraine are you kidding me i mean i was like this is ridiculous i mean i was i had suspected a connection between malaysia that you know mh370 and and russia and ukraine because i'd already been thinking that the russian invasion of ukraine was the reason why they you know took it to distract attention um and now you're saying that the, that one got shot down in Ukraine. I'm like, that's like, it's like they're rubbing our face in it. And I yeah. had sort of thought, my weird, weirdly, I was like, a lot of people at the time were like, let's solve the mystery of MH370, right? A lot of people, the, the whole independent group that I think I've talked about a little bit, all of yeah. these smart people were trying to solve this mystery so they could say, I'm the person that solved the mystery of MH370, right? Yeah. It's not really what a journalist is supposed to be thinking like, but it's hard not to think like that. Right. When, you're, when you've got, like, the world's greatest mystery that everyone in the world is thinking and talking about 24-7, right? And so I'm like, well, this is it. I mean, it's obvious what happened now. I mean, the connection between Russia, Ukraine, Malaysian Airlines, 777s, I mean, it's just... I, I mean, that that was, like, one of my first thoughts. When my One of my other early thoughts, like, immediate thoughts was, oh, my God, what have I done? I've hired a person in Russia to poke around and now they've just murdered 295 more people in cold blood. So I was like, like I have like, I have blood on my hands with the, because if this, if this researcher gets arrested and thrown in jail, I, mean, I was thinking about like the kill, um, was it the killing fields where um the, the New York times photographer gets yeah. imprisoned because of the New York times reporter. Yeah. That's a lot of pressure. That. That's a lot of pressure, but uh, someone reassured you that that probably was not the case. I think, right? <laughs> well, to be, to, I mean, obviously, <laughs> nobody, no, the, the world did not immediately conclude that. Oh, yeah, obviously there was a connection. Yeah, Jeff Weiss did and it, I, and I, right? <laughs> well, I found myself going on. I was back in the um, CNN studio. I was back on air with you know, in a panel with other people. And everyone's saying, well, no, it's just an absolute coincidence. Well, we should talk about what happened, I guess. Yeah, okay. So this one, this one's actually a little bit less of a mystery, at least as, as I see it, right? So, I mean, at first... At first the the element was... of mystery is less obvious. Right. Okay. So, let's see. So this, this, was, this was like the sister plane of MH370, which I didn't even know there right. was a such thing. But um, what they had, uh, uh, Malaysia Airlines had 15 777s. Out of right. the eighteen thousand in the world, there are eighteen thousand like registered commercial aircraft that are like that can carry passengers around. You know, not all of them are like active at all times, but right. if you think about, it, there's fifteen 
planes that are Malaysian Airlines 777s and there's, you know, tens of thousands of planes in general. Like it's a tiny, tiny, tiny fraction. Yeah, so the so odds that something is going to go wrong and also there's never been a fatal accident with a 777. Right. So this plane, this plane um, flew from Amsterdam to Kuala Lumpur, or at least it was on the way. Right. And then it exploded midair. And the first reports were that it was shot down by a surface-to-air missile while flying over territory held by Russian-backed rebels. And that sounded well. That sounded okay. They were called Russian-backed rebels. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Right. They were actually. It was actually an operation by the Russian military, and they were. They had. They had made various. They had made various attempts to make it seem like it wasn't what it was. They didn't want to yeah. seem like Russia had just invaded Ukraine. I mean, they I remember they like debadged like these guys, right? They, they didn't have like you know Russian emblems. They, they were just like wearing like. Yeah, uh, Crimea had been taken over by these quote unquote little green men. Right. That just sort of showed up, and they're like, "We're here. We're taking it over." And the Ukrainians were so shocked that they didn't really know what to do, and they just let it happen. And that annoyed them later but so okay, so it's, it, yeah. it it turned out it, it was in fact shot down by a surface air missile missile it was a 150 pound shrapnel laced warhead it tore open the um the airframe i mean these poor right. passengers crew must have just f- flown into the slipstream and died and yeah uh igor gherkin who was a gru colonel right. he and, and according to Reuters, he was in the active reserve. And he starts right. gloating all over social media that the rebels had destroyed a Ukrainian mili- military transport plane. Right. But no, it was definitely not a military transport plane. He takes down his post. What right. happened next? So just so in case people don't know, GRU is a slightly inaccurate acronym because it's not really okay. what they call it anymore. But it's it's what people use. to. It's kind of like the modern KGB, except it's right. military intelligence. So it's like a sort of military version of the KGB. It's a lot of there, former KGB guys, for sure. Um, yeah, it's the it, it's like all of these sort of spycraft traditions carry. And Putin himself is former KGB. Yes, so the Russian was, government yeah. is very kind of pro espionage, pro dirty tricks. Um, this is how they. So it's no accident they didn't just invade Ukraine. They used all these sneaky subterfuges. So so Igor Gherkin is supposedly this volunteer who wanted to help out, you know, his brethren in Ukraine by seceding from the Ukrainian government. Um, but, and which I guess we could probably talk a lot about that in another episode too. Yeah. But so he is a, not just a guy in military fatigues who happens to be helping to run a resistance organization. He's actually a military officer in the Russian army slash military intelligence specifically. So when so he, he says yeah. something, you have to take it with a grain of salt. But, you know, so, so yeah, yes. Yeah, and, and, and he's maybe speaking on behalf of people a little higher up in yeah, the Russian he's not government. Freelancing. Right. Although right. Gherkin does turn out to be a rather colorful character and is now in prison in Russia right now for letting his little mouth run off a little bit. There are an awful lot of people who are in prison in Russia because they ran their mouth off. Not well, they're the lucky that they're in prison because the alternative is to get thrown out of a um, seven-story window. window. Yeah. 
the Russian right. window cancer. But anyway, I digress. Um, yeah. So uh, he, he so says, he says the rebels shot it down by accident. And people, like the Western analysts are like, yeah, that's, that sounds good. Everyone believes it. Everyone's not everybody. Like, not at, well, I'm definitely a little bit suspicious. I'm like, this is a little bit too convenient. I mean... I, I, I drew up the I came up with an analogy that I quite liked, which is okay. imagine that you're a chicken farmer and you've never lost a chicken. You you know, you've got a nice fence and your chickens are very safe and you get lots of eggs. And then one day you find a dead chicken. It's like mangled, it's chewed up, it's you know, it's bloody, it's dead. It's been killed by probably some creature. And you have no idea what creature, because you just can't imagine. And then um four and a half months later or whatever, um you find a fox stealing a chicken. You know what happened to the second chicken for sure, but you probably have pretty deep suspicions about the first one as well. And I so, like this one. I, li- I like this I like this almost like this as much analogy. as I like the Andy Barr versus Jeff Barr and the drunken <laughs> brother-in-law and the tooting like the air horn. This one's good. <laughs> the idea is just that, like, who's in the business of destroying Malaysian Airlines 777s through nefarious means in the first half or mid, mid first part of 2014, right? There's at least one. I mean, imagine there's somebody. I mean, are there two perpetrators out there who, for some reason, taken a particular, um, you know, hankering to the, for the I destruction? Mean, you of you wouldn't think so. Airplane. Malaysia doesn't have any enemies. I mean, that I know of. Yeah. Uh, certainly not yeah. anyone who has the capability to be shooting planes down or stealing yeah. them and taking them to Russia unless it is Russia. Um, so so let's let's keep the story moving here. So Bellingcat comes in. Uh, these guys sound interesting to me. They're like open source intelligence yeah. people. Yeah, they are. Um, Elliot Higgins is this um, English guy who was unemployed um, shortly prior to this, and he'd been kind of sitting around in his underwear, literally on his couch at home, bored, and he had started to look at um, social media images of the war in Syria and hmm. found wound up putting together a, a really compelling case that the Syrian government had been using chemical warfare against its own people. And this was kind of a big deal because President Obama had said if the Syrian government uses chemical weapons against its own people, this is a red line and the United States will do something. So Absolutely. Elliot Higgins, this guy in his underwear, found very compelling evidence that they were doing just that and it sort of forced Obama to like do he did he didn't do anything and like kind of embarrassed him. So but Bellingcat is um it's not just it's not like um just a bunch of amateurs. I mean this is filled with actual intelligence people who are kind of working on you know, without an official affiliation. Is that how you would describe it? Well, Bellingcat kind of, I don't know if they single-handedly developed the the concept of open source intelligence, but they certainly were, Elliot Higgins and then the people that kind of accumulated around him became like the founding fathers of this movement, and, and they still are very active in it. And so these guys, when MH17 was shot down, they took it upon themselves to start pouring through social media put up, that had been put on people. Like a lot of people in Russia and Ukraine have cameras in their cars, and, mm-hmm. and they'll post it. Oh, they, and they so love the dash they, cams. Dash cams, thank you. That's yeah. the word. And so they would be driving. Somebody would be driving down the road, and they would pass a tank or an armored vehicle, 
and they would post it on social media and these guys would collect it and they were able to put together the movements of this particular it was called a book um, missile launcher um, yeah this one's so yeah. i don't know how much detail we need to get into on this one right. but We'll, we'll blow through it really quickly because sure. um, it's, it's notable, right? So, yeah. so Bellingcat f- figures out that this is the second battalion of the 53rd Anti-Aircraft Missile Brigade, which right. left its base outside of Kursk in Russia, drives south to the village of Milerovo. I'm going to get skewered on my... <laughs> Milarevo or something. I Milarevo. mean, it kind of followed a roundabout. It like gone to the, the, it gone to like Donetsk and then spent the night. And then it was like, it was delivered on a truck and they were able to identify their particular truck. And then it was delivered to this field. And it sat in this field for several hours, just sitting there as plane after plane after plane went overhead. And then it shot down MH17. And it, now this, this particular vehicle was what's called a Tellar. And it's a transporter erector launcher. Which and means it, it does can drive enorm- around. Huh? That means it can, it can drive, drive around. around? Okay. It can drive so, around not well, which is why it was on a truck. But, okay. um, but, but one of the things that people noticed quite early was, well, it's not accompanied by like the radar truck that would like give it the detailed knowledge of exactly who was overhead. And so this kind of fit into the idea that, well, no, the people that were in this vehicle fired the rocket without knowing what they were shooting at. Yeah. And so the cover story is, well, we thought there was like a Ukrainian like transport plane or something. We thought it was that. And, this there's a certain plausibility to this because after Russia, you know, took over parts of the Donbass, eastern Ukraine, the Russia, the Ukrainians had fought back and they had used like a, attack aircraft to really punish and hurt uh, and um, kill a lot of the uh, the the Russians that were fighting against them. And so the war was going very badly for the Russians, and they really wanted to stop. Um, this aerial, these aerial assaults by the Ukrainians, and once they brought in these heavy guns like this, this um, Buk missile launcher, it really made the air very dangerous, and so it did have the effect of stopping the assault. And the war, it was kind of a turning point in the war where it became much more difficult, and Ukraine wasn't really able to gain much more ground after that for many, many years until then the later invasion um, that happened so- in. Yeah. You'll have to pardon my ignorance here on sure. Sam so, <laughs> technology here, but sure. um, because they didn't have the radar truck, would they have known that this was MH17? Or how could and they have again, known that it was MH17? This, again, is one of these assumptions that people make that don't really know the the details, but it sounds reasonable. And kind of like in the last episode where like a lot of people thought, well, it had to fly over all these countries. There must, it must, it would have definitely been seen. Well, yeah. no, actually it doesn't work like that. And this is a very related topic, which is when you're talking about air defense systems, it's not like you have a missile launcher and then a radar next to it. Okay. Modern air defense systems are like a network of sensors and a network of launchers and other assets, and it's all kind of tied together. And so you don't have to be next to a radar 
all there's a bunch of radars all over the place and you and you are tied into the the the, the, the network of, the network and the network is run by high ranking officers this is a missile system that can shoot down planes up to like 70,000 feet and it and it goes for many miles so it's a very it's a very dangerous weapon and one of the first things that people are taught when they um, are, you know, in training to operate one of these things is you don't shoot it unless your officer, your superior, tells you to shoot it. So there's like two lieutenants in charge of this thing, and then they can't fire it until their bosses tell it, and their boss has to tell them. So there's what's called chain of command responsibility. Right. You can't fire this missile until you're told to do it. So the idea that these were militiamen who were just kind of freelancing and sort of taking wild pot shots at things in the sky is not true. This was a vehicle belonging to a regular Russian military unit. It was under orders from the GRU, military intelligence, and there's no reason to think that it was operating outside of the context of the air defense network. Well, and furthermore, yeah, furthermore, I mean, this was not a a fighter plane. I mean, this was a slow-moving civilian aircraft that was on a flight path so it was on a flight path that was transmitting a transponder code that identified it very clearly so it wasn't moving at the speed of a trans military transport it wasn't it wasn't um at the altitude of a military transport and what's more it was on a flight path that this plane that this rocket launcher had been sitting under for hours watching civilian airliner after civilian airliner go overhead. There was absolutely no reason why these people in this launcher would think that it was a military transport, and there's no reason why they would take a pot shot at it anyway. Yeah, so this is the part that I think is totally bananas, and in fact, it's so bananas I asked you, like, is this even, is this, like, verified, or is this just something that... You're skeptical. Because I was like, no way, all right? Yeah. The headline here from Business Insider is Obama spoke to Putin right after the Malaysia passenger plane crash in Ukraine. Right. So this is this is a this is a real conversation that happened. And basically, if I'm getting this correctly, on a pre-planned call between Putin and Obama at the Kremlin's request, Putin requested the day before. The day before the, the shootdown of this plane. He was the guy who told President Obama that the plane was shot down. Yeah. That's how the West first found out about MH17 getting shot down. Putin personally told Obama on a pre-scheduled call right after the thing happened. And so I spent, I've spent years trying to work out the exact timing of the start of the call and when was it that air traffic control like what minute did they figure out what had happened? Because the the investigators. So, just to jump ahead a little bit, this wound up being a criminal case in the Netherlands, where they investigated um, what happened and they worked and they sort of built on Bellingcat's open source intelligence and also added in like interviews with people and so forth. So they got a really granular understanding of what happened in this crash. Um, and they have transcripts of what the air traffic controllers were saying to one another, but it only goes for like the first half hour. And I, so I don't know what happens after that. But I've always thought that if 
the call between Putin and Obama started before air traffic control themselves figured out what had happened, that would be pretty compelling evidence that it was pre-planned because Putin knew about, knew that the plane was shot down before air traffic control knew that it was shot down. There, there, there's, there are readouts of this call, right? So the White House said, quote, during the call, President Putin noted the early reports of a downed passenger jet near the Russia-Ukraine border. Right. And the Kremlin corroborated this. Their quote was, the Russian leader informed the U.S. president of the report from air traffic controllers that the Malaysian plane had crashed on Ukrainian territory, which had arrived immediately before the phone call. Right. And... Oh, by the way, 23 U.S. citizens were among the people who died on this plane. Yeah, and so if Russia deliberately shot down this plane, Obama would have known about it instantly because he, he, know, he knew what time the call started and he knew how long it took them to figure out what was going on. And so I've always been extremely curious as to when that call started. I even went to – so this was part of the White House and the White House is not subject to um, FOIA – um, right. requests so i was i was thwarted in that i actually went to a, like a a lecture that was given in um in manhattan and the 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 presenter had worked in this department of the white house and so i went up to her afterwards everyone was she was like signing her books and stuff yeah and i was like can you t- this is this piece of information that i want to know can you tell me and she's like i can't tell you and it's not public information and you're out of luck Right. So as I understand it, the only thing that you get out of these kind of um, high level meetings are the readouts of what the White House and the Kremlin. As you would know, because you worked in the White House. Yeah, I didn't have that kind of access. But (laughs) yeah, you don't you don't get a transcript. It's not like, you know, it's it's there. It's kind of like their version of it, Um, which, you know, if they match, I mean, that's cool. And in this case, they do match. But we, we don't have you know, we don't have evidence that you know obama said you you must be freaking kidding me vlad so my understanding is that part of the reason is they don't like to make it public is because like if they had a two-minute phone call or on an important topic it would look bad um so but i do what does happen is that like 20 years later you'll be like they'll be sometimes you'll see in the news like oh like phone records from like late reagan administration just got released i mean they're held on to that's for sure i mean except you know except for that one where um Trump and Putin met, and Trump ordered, oh, yeah. I think, in Copenhagen, and Trump ordered them to tear up. I think he might have eaten them as he was want to do. But you know, this he, is part. Like, this will be. We'll, we'll get to that too. We'll get to that. Um, but I mean, th- yeah. these these records are kept. They're just not something that we yeah. can see. And they will come out someday. It will come out someday. Uh, it's, and it's so amazing. anyway, all of these. So so again. Everyone assumed, everybody, and I, and I interviewed all of these foreign policy experts and all these old hands who were like all, knew all about U- Russia and Ukraine, and I said to them, is, like, is there any possibility that this was like actually not an accident? Yeah. And everyone was like, no, no, there's no way that Russia would do this. Um, no, 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 it, must, it was definitely, I mean, look at what Igor Gherkin said. It had to be, uh, they never, it was a big embarrassment for them. They didn't plan it. Um, and... You know, the, there's a sort of a, a words of wisdom. If you want to lie to somebody, like the most impenetrable lie is a lie that's like embarrassing for you, right? Mm-hmm. You know, so uh, it, it's, it's very believable that you did something bad if that bad thing is embarrassing to you, right? Well, and Gherkin, so, 
Kirkin and some other high-ranking Russian officials were convicted in absentia in a Dutch court. Right. So Gherkin, who said it was, like all, last it was all a mistake, he was, he's now been sentenced to life in prison in the Netherlands, which is probably like a summer camp. But anyway, I, Frankly, was, if I were him, I'd rather be there than wherever Putin's got him. Oh, like, he's in, he's like, he's in prison in Russia. Away. I would definitely yeah. be much rather. I'll take the there. Netherlands jail, but that's just me. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it, at this point, it's pretty much universally accepted and understood that Russia did this. They've kind of dropped the facade that this was like an accident, right? Like the world believes. Russia did it. Russian military intelligence organized it. Um, people have been criminally found guilty of, of for their role in it. And yet there's one big but. Okay. The most people who, who have an opinion about MA-17 still think that it was a mistake that they didn't intend to shoot it down because why would they? And well, yeah. but but this is the thing that I keep getting back to is like if you know how these air defense networks work there would be no excuse for them to not know exactly what this plane was. Well, this brings up kind of a point that everyone I know who's watched our podcast is like everything you're saying is really convincing, but right. why? But why? And and why? you know, we can spend hours on that one. But the short version is you don't always know why in asymmetrical warfare. You don't know why the bad guy did something. You know, they may have their own reasons. They may just be testing something out. They may be saving it for later. I mean, we're not privy to that information. But just because we don't know the why doesn't mean we don't we can't figure out the what. So you just used a word that we haven't used before, but that is important. Asymmetrical warfare. Um, also known as hybrid warfare. Um, And it is this kind of an ancient idea that you, that war isn't just about hitting your enemy with your sword or your arrow. It's also about deceiving your, your enemy, discouraging your enemy, making your enemy think that you're more powerful than you really are or less powerful than you really are. And this has a long tradition in military history. It has a very particular long history in Russian military history. Um, but we've we've already talked about how Putin was using deception to create a false narrative around this war that he had started. And so he was trying to achieve his objectives, not just through strength, but also through cleverness and deception. So and then, you know, one of the one of the hallmarks of hybrid warfare is that you don't always know what your enemy is up to. You don't understand what his goals are. You don't understand what his MO is, what his means and his methods are. So confusion is often an aim in itself. You want your opponent to be confused. And the fact that we are baffled by MH370, the fact that we continue to be baffled by MH17, even though it looks like a very blunt, kind of brutal um, thing is all part and parcel with something we're going to see more of. So we're going to see more confusion, more nefarious skulldudgery. We yeah. are now we have now entered into kind of a new period of history, one in which um, clever, um, bad actors are causing chaos for reasons that aren't always clear. Because so the short version of what you just said is when people mm-hmm. say why, I say well you know 
why does Putin throw people out of windows? Why does he poison them with polonium tea? I mean, they're easier, you know, why does he use, you know, pointy uh, umbrella, you know, st- like th- there are easier ways to make bad guys or to make your enemies go away. But that's just how, that's how this guy rolls. And that's, that's how the former KGB rolls because they insert confusion and fear um so anyone who would look at MH370 and say, why would Putin do that? To me, the question is, why wouldn't he do it? Yeah, yeah. And and, and, and I feel like we've gone long on this one. So let me, uh, I just want to say one more thing on this topic, which is that one of the hallmarks of hybrid warfare is confusion, but more specifically, kind of burying the narrative in all kinds of alternative, ridiculous narratives and so when mh17 was shot down you had all these stories circulating that the americans really did it that the ukrainians really did it that mh17 was actually mh370 and that all the bodies that they collected had i remember like that been frozen yeah i remember that and and it kind of cast in a different light all of the crazy stories that you would that were being circulated about mh370 there was actually, um, I remember a Ukrainian-linked company at the time that was saying, oh, we have pictures of it in Australia or something. And there were, I mean, to this day, I mean, every every documentary, except for, I thought, the, the, the Netflix documentary, every documentary for years and years was like, oh, there's 12 different theories and they're all conspiracy theories and like nothing. There's, there's a great book by a guy named Peter Pomerantsov who was in media in Russia is also educated in the West. And the name of the book is Nothing is, Tr- Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. And this is the kind of mindset that an autocracy puts its people into, where there's all these crazy rumors, you can't believe anything that anybody says, um, and you can also believe any wild rumor because it's just, there is no, the ground underneath your feet has turned to So, to so maybe we should have called this episode hashtag gaslighting, but <laughs> maybe that'll be the next one. I don't know. Yeah. Well, there's yeah, there well there there's time. There's time. There's a lot more of that. All right, so let's do the perfunctory stuff. Um okay. so the the podcast okay, so we're on episode 14. We're Right. There's so much more to go. People say how many yeah. episodes are you going to do? I'm like, well, when we're done, we'll, we'll be done. So there's, there's It's like when you go. climb up a mountain like the, the you think the top is just ahead of you and then it, it keeps, keeps receding. Yeah, it's a That's very tall mountain. Like. Uh, but it's gaining traction for sure. It's on all the platforms. If you're listening uh, in audio, it's on Apple Podcasts, it's on Spotify, it's on Amazon Music, it's on everywhere that an RSS feed can put it. Uh, if you're watching it on video, it's on YouTube, it's on Facebook. So there's lots and lots of ways to consume this. Also, there's our website, deepdivemh370.com, where we have yeah. a lively conversation going on with a bunch of people who have really good ideas. And Great some place people- to post questions or make comments or requests. Um, and you can also, in the YouTube, you can actually comment and make questions there, too. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, I'll tell you right now that we're still not going to spend a whole lot of time talking about UFOs, which to the chagrin of some people, because I feel like we've already done it. I but, think I'm going to go on a UFO podcast, though. I, I'm like in the, Oh, you're going to do it? I'm going to go on one of these YouTube podcasts. All right, good luck to you on that one, because I would not really want to be on that. But, yeah, this is where you're supposed to like and subscribe and tell us what you think about this because the more people who participate the bigger this grows and more importantly 
this is driving a conversation. Our podcast may not give all the answers and find the solution to what happened, but it could very well restart the conversation with the people who can find some closure on this. So we think we're doing some important work. And by the way, I think it's pretty entertaining and interesting and tragic. And I I think the most, uh, the, the gaslighty crazy stuff is yet to come. Well, yeah, there's, we've, we've had a lot and there's more. It's a big barrel. So, okay, we'll be back at you next week. and um, Every Thursday. I hope this one made sense. How, how did we do on the time on this one? Oh, that's a long one. Okay, apologies <laughs> for that. Uh, okay. Thank you, Jeff, for, for Thanks, another Andy. week of this. I hope we overcame our technical hurdles and this yeah. all came out okay because I don't want to re-record it. Yeah, me too. Thanks, Andy. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye.